Good morning, church. I was recently made aware of something that I think you would really enjoy. It's a music recommendation. That's what we're starting off with this morning. The group is called Poor Bishop Hooper. Poor Bishop Hooper, named after Bishop John Hooper, persecuted Anglican church minister in the 1500s. It's a husband and wife group. They make keyboard music, pretty minimalistic, really pretty singing and harmonies. And starting back in 2020, poor Bishop Hooper, the group, right before the pandemic, started a project called Every Psalm. Every Psalm. And for 150 weeks in a row, every single week, they released an arrangement and recording of every single psalm in English. Really cool. It's really cool. So check it out. Poor Bishop Hooper, Every Psalm. You can find them on all of the streaming services and YouTube. And if you Google their name, Poor Bishop Hooper, you'll find all their stuff on their website for free. It's all for free. So you can access it. Uh, it's deeply moving to hear these songs. <clears throat> the, the, the songbook of the church and of the people of God sung anew. It's really cool. Uh, so maybe in the future, we can adapt some of their arrangements in our musical worship. Who knows? It'd be pretty cool. They haven't released any uh, sheet music or chord charts yet that's coming, so we'll see what we can do. I think it would be kind of cool to sing some psalms on a Sunday morning here at church, wouldn't it? I think that'd be pretty cool. But in any case, I found their commitment to put out once a week for 150 weeks in a row, every single psalm with, with a new arrangement and everything, pretty remarkable. The recordings are simple, of course, right? The lyrics are provided for them, and they're just an interesting take on those lyrics. And the music is just keyboards and organ and some, some simple stuff, but 150 weeks in a row. That's some serious dedication to this project. So we don't regularly see that kind of commitment Right? We don't see that kind of dedication in our world today. It's really rare. And when we do see it, we're astounded. So I wanted to share that with you because I was astounded. Many of us can think of examples of artists or athletes or soldiers or nurses or many other people who display remarkable commitment to their task. And it, it takes us off guard. It amazes us. They're remarkable because commitment to something noble it's really difficult. Normal people struggle with commitment. We, we struggle with commitment. And we always have. But Christians are called to a deeper kind of commitment. We're called to an integrity grounded upon the word of God and founded upon the person of Jesus Christ. And our scriptures this weekend is all about commitment. Jesus describes a deeper commitment. In our mini-series through the Sermon on the Mount, we've been confronted by the authority of Jesus. Two weeks ago, we learned the principle that we need to understand all of chapter 5 and all of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus fulfills the law. He fills it up. He brings it to fruition. And last week, we saw that firsthand, right? He showed his authority in action by filling up the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. He showed us that it's really in the heart where the sin starts. And that we should be concerned about more than a mere keeping of the law. 
but that we should pursue a deeper righteousness by putting off anything that leads to murder. He's going to do the same thing this week with the seventh commandment, and then he's going to tackle two concessions in the law that the Pharisees got wrong. So let's stand together and read Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 all the way to verse 37. Matthew chapter 5, 27 through 37. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Please be seated as we pray. Lord, we humbly come to your word once again. We need the power of the Spirit now to understand it. We pray that you would give us understanding of your word. Pray that you would help me to say the things you want me to say. Shut me up where you want me to shut up. Lord, we love you and we dedicate this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I mentioned the formula that Jesus would use throughout all of chapter 5, and that the formula occurs six times. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And we only looked at one of those last week, one of those statements, and this week we are looking at three. And all three are organized around the idea of righteous commitment in the kingdom of heaven. What we do at home And what we say to other people matters to Jesus. Jesus wants to bring us to a deeper type of commitment, a deeper integrity of the heart. Not just outward signs of righteousness. So he starts with two examples from the married life. So first, Jesus wants us to have integrity in our marriages. Verses 27 through 30 and verses 31 through 32 both include the formula, it was said, but I say to you. Yet both are related to the same commandment found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. The seventh commandment. Both of these sections have to do with the commitments that we've made in marriage. So we have to actually understand them together, read them in tandem. In verses 27 through 30, Jesus wants us to see that the seventh commandment is deeper than adultery. 
deeper than adultery. The outline of these verses, 27 through 30, is almost identical to 21 through 26 on the sixth commandment. Both start with the, you have heard that it was said, and then Jesus moves to, but I say to you, followed by two examples starting with if. So, simply based on the outline, we can kind of guess what Jesus is going to do. It's the same thing he did last week. Once again, instead of widening the seventh commandment, Jesus is going to deepen it with two outcomes. First outcome is that we examine our heart. And the second outcome is that we see the urgency of obedience. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Last week's sermon laid the groundwork for understanding verse 28. Just like how Jesus includes everything that leads up to murder in the sixth commandment, so he includes everything that leads up to adultery in the seventh. And once again, the command of Exodus 20:14 to not commit adultery is a mere starting line. If we think we're keeping the seventh commandment just because we haven't cheated on our wives or cheated on our husbands, if we think we're keeping it, then we've got it all wrong. Look at what's bound up in the transgression. Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So then we might think it must be the fault of the eyes. It must be the eyes. They must be the thing that betrays us. It's not just the hands that want to grab and take, but the eyes that see. But that's not all that Jesus says. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it turns out that the origin of sin, and of this sin in particular, is not the hands that commit the deed, Or the eyes that see something new, but the heart that lusts. There's something in the heart. All that is needed to transgress the seventh commandment is a lustful heart. That's where the sin takes place. In fact, that's where every sin takes place, in our hearts. Our hearts cannot be trusted. And in scripture, heart stands for everything that is immaterial, in man. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The issue at stake in every commandment is the heart. But the seventh commandment gives us special insight into that truth. When does adultery begin? Is it in the bedroom of the act? Is it in the secret conversations? Is it in the marital discontent? Is it in the fantasy or the ogling? None of these things are where adultery starts, yet adultery is present in all of those things. Adultery starts in the heart. It starts in the heart that is discontent. The radical move that Jesus makes here in verse 28 is connecting the seventh commandment 
with the tenth. The tenth commandment says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Covetousness is at the root of adultery. A heart that is discontent with the blessings that it has received will covet and take. There is a rapaciousness at the heart of Jesus' statement here. What we translate as lustful intent is more than just mere sexual attraction. A heart full of, of lust, of lustful intent, is a heart that has seized for its own what it has no right to seize. It involves activity and not just a physical response. Right? This is a, the activity much of our culture relies upon, even to sell things. It's the activity that makes the allure of pornography such a dangerous problem. In our fallen, sinful hearts lies this insatiable covetousness that would own the whole world. That would take every woman as a sexual partner if we let it. Simple adultery in today's culture is child's play. Right? It was unthinkable then, at the time of Christ, that someone might commit adultery. It was a, 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 an offense that you might be stoned to death for. But now it's almost excusable. At the fingertips now of every person are infinite sexual possibilities that would have been unimaginable to those in the time of Christ. But to us, pornography, adultery, etc., etc., they're almost normal, commonplace. In a world this soaked in sexual immorality, it almost feels like a losing battle, something not worth fighting against. But that's not Jesus' attitude at all, is it? He doesn't despair as if there's no victory. He says something extreme. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Extreme problems call for extreme action. And just like the many parables Jesus gives us about murder, here we find two things that force upon us a sense of urgency. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, lop it off. These are some gory examples. We can use our imaginations here. So is Jesus calling us to mutilate ourselves? Hopefully it's obvious that he's not. The church has never condoned actual self-mutilation for the sake of holiness. It actually condemned it at a council. And in fact, to understand Jesus literally would be to misunderstand the point entirely. Remember, it's not the hand or the eye that's doing the sinning. It's the heart. Jesus is not calling us to self-mutilation. But he is calling us to self-mortification. Paul says in Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. These are the earthly things he lists. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All of them are related. Given Satan's way, all of those things would end in adultery and idolatry. So Paul urges us to put them to death where we find them in our hearts. Paul also says in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the meaning of Jesus' hyperbolic statement here in verses 29 through 30. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Actually do it. Kill the flesh where you find sin. In both examples, with both the eye and with the hand, Jesus says it's better to lose one member of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. The eye that looks with lustful intent and the hand that takes and thieves does not need to be kept. It needs to be removed. Christians are called to a deeper righteousness, and that has practical implications If Jesus calls us to radical separation from sin, like cutting off a hand, then we should consider getting rid of the things that actually tempt us, even if it makes our life harder. Smartphones, computers, and technology in general. All of these things should be approached from the perspective of personal holiness. Do we approach our smartphones and computers from a perspective of personal holiness? It's better to be without these things than for us to be lured into the trap of adultery. If an app causes you to sin, delete it. Get rid of it. And that goes for more than just adultery, by the way, sexual temptation. If a piece of technology that you own or an app on that technology causes you to sin, breaking either the sixth or the seventh or what other ever commandment there is out there, if it's causing you to do that, get rid of it. It's not worth having. The things that you post on Facebook matter to the Lord. And if it's causing you to sin, get rid of it. Last week, we looked at a couple examples of what the Pharisees might do in widening the sixth commandment. And I think we have the opportunity, opportunity now to ask that question again. It gives us an ability to get even more practical. Okay, so in, in talking to a friend this week, we determined that there might be two areas that the Pharisees might try to widen this commandment. First, they might take the approach of Islam and, and cover up every woman from head to toe as if women are something to hide from men who cannot control themselves. But that's not the right response. That's tantamount to blaming the eyes for what they see rather than blaming the heart. So in the past, women have been shamed into thinking that their very existence causes men to sin. And women, that's not true. The heart of men causes them to sin. And while modesty and appropriate dress are certainly conversations that we all need to have with wisdom, men... We can't blame women for our own hearts. Can I get an amen? Amen. Jesus doesn't say, so if your right eye causes you to sin, cover up everything around you so you can't see it. He says, tear out your own eye. Own your own problems. Put your own flesh to death. 
Get your own heart in order through the Spirit. The second approach we might find to widening this commandment is another approach that some Christians have taken through church history. We might imagine the Pharisees saying something like, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that even sex in marriage is sinful. All sex is dirty and sinful. But this isn't true either. The sexual union of man and wife is a sacred thing that should be celebrated within a marriage. It's good. But all too often, we make the, the, the mistake of placing shame upon the act itself when what Jesus condemns is a lustful and covetous heart. Both of these widenings of the seventh commandment are incorrect. And neither are what Jesus does here. He deepens the law by calling us first to examine our hearts. What lies there is what causes sin. So he calls us to kill that which lies underneath, to kill our sin and all the stuff that might even lead to adultery. Marriage is good and it needs to be protected and adultery destroys it and everything that leads up to adultery destroys it. The next section, verses 31 through 32, is deeply related. And in them, Jesus wants us to see the sanctity of marriage. Now, before I dive into an exposition of these verses, I have two things to say. First, I want single people to understand that all of this applies to you. It absolutely applies to you for a couple of reasons. To start, just because you're single doesn't mean you can break the seventh commandment. If adultery is the ultimate sin Satan wants to bring your heart to if you're married, then fornication is that sin for single people. And neither are allowed. That's a big, ugly-sounding word, fornication. That includes all sexual immorality with someone else who's unmarried. We're called to kill sin where we find it in our hearts. So it applies to you. You don't get to sit this one out if you're single. Next, single people. You should be so invested in the life of the church that some of your closest brothers and sisters are married people. They should be concerned. Single people should be concerned about those marriages because you know that they reflect the relationship Christ has with the church. Single people, you should <clears throat> desire to be really involved with the church. And when your friends are struggling in their marriages, you get to have some input. Because just as Jesus was a single man and hated adultery, so should you. And just as Jesus, a single man, hates divorce, so should you. So single people, stay with me. Be invested in these things for your own holiness and for the holiness of your brothers and sisters around you. That's the first thing to single people. Stay invested. This applies to you. Second. <clears throat> Verses 31 through 32 introduce a topic that is sensitive for many of us. Many of, many of us have personal first-hand or second-hand experience with divorce. So it's with great sensitivity that I want to exposit these verses. 
However, I would be sinning if I soften any command or words of Jesus. So I won't be doing that. Nevertheless, it is never my intent up here to offend someone. That's not what I'm trying to do. If the word of God does that, I apologize on my word's behalf, but not, on the, not for the word. It's not my intent to offend or to ruffle feathers. And it's with really, real great humility now that I ask you to engage with the words of Christ with me. With both of these things in mind for single people and for the verses we're about to approach, let's read them again. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What Old Testament verses does Jesus have in mind here? You'll notice that this is not one of the Ten Commandments Jesus is dealing with. That's what he's done so far. So it's not one of those but it is a summary of the common pharisaical teaching of the time around divorce. There's one main text in the law of Moses that has to do with divorce, and it's Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Now, Jesus deals with divorce and that scripture, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, in much greater detail in Matthew 19. There we find Pharisees approaching him and asking him his understanding of divorce. And again, it's all centered around that text. That particular instance in Matthew 19 is centered on the right interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. So I think it's worth reading that together in its entirety to find out what's going on. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the, the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So right away, this law is dealing with a very particular example of a woman who's married a man, the man has found some indecency in her, hold on to that word, he writes a certificate of divorce, sends her away, she marries another guy, he hates her, maybe a similar reason, sends her away. The law is about the first husband not being allowed to remarry her. It's a very particular thing. The word translated as indecency is a bit ambiguous, but it probably has to do with premarital sex or some other form of sexual immorality. And at the time of Christ, there were two competing views on how to interpret Deuteronomy 
24 verses 1 through 4. But both sides understood the, the text to allow divorce. Now, there's no commandment, as the Pharisees say in Matthew 19, that Moses gives them to divorce a wife. They're incorrect there. They have a bad starting point. Their question is, what are godly grounds for divorce? One side of the debate understood this passage quite narrowly. The only ground for divorce was some sort of sexual indecency, sexual immorality, or something like that. The other group interpreted the passage widely. Anything counted as indecency. Anything. There are even commentaries of this passage that we have from the time of Christ that say a man can divorce his wife even if she burns his food. This was the prevailing view at the time of Christ. That side was winning out. And of course it was. Of course it was. People are always looking for the interpretation of Scripture that gives them the most leniency for sin. Okay, but Jesus says this about divorce. Verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus includes divorce within the seventh commandment. In fact, the only way divorce doesn't end in adultery, according to Jesus, is if the cause of the divorce is already adultery. That's how much divorce is wrapped up in that, in adultery. It's a hard saying. It's offensive stuff, right? Like last week, with anger, we immediately went to ask the what about questions. We immediately went there. What about someone who leaves? What about physical, sexual, emotional, or psychological abuse? These are all really good questions, and they need to be dealt with using a lot of wisdom and care. But that's not Jesus' goal here as much as we'd like it to be. He gives us a couple sentences on divorce. And he's speaking into a culture that views marriage as temporary and disposable. A man could divorce his wife for any reason. And of course, that only hurt women. That only hurt women back then. Women, women couldn't do the same. They couldn't divorce their husbands for any reason. But our culture isn't any different. Anybody can divorce anybody for whatever reason. Divorce is viewed from the secular worldview as a slightly bigger breakup. There are divorce parties, just like we have engagement parties. But when we read a passage like this, we can hear Jesus's heart on the issue, what he actually thinks. Divorce is not supposed to be a standard. It's not supposed to be a good thing. And in Matthew 19, Jesus says this about divorce and marriage. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus understands marriage from the perspective of the original intent in creation. A man and a woman come together to become one flesh. And that's a lasting bond 
that no certificate of divorce for any and every reason can break. In the time of Christ, divorce always carried the implication of remarriage. Maybe that's not the case today, but it was then. If you got divorced, you're getting remarried. So to divorce a wife meant making her commit adultery as she remarries. And to marry another woman meant that you would also commit adultery. Because a simple certificate of divorce doesn't nullify the unified bond of man and woman becoming one flesh. Again, this is hard stuff that we need to sit with and wrestle through. We need to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here. Our mindset around marriage needs to be different than the world's. It's not a temporary disposable thing. It's a lasting union before God. And it's something to be celebrated and protected. So when we finally get to Matthew 19, we'll get to unpack this a lot more. We'll get to unpack what Jesus has to say on the topic. But his point right here is to jolt us out of the false belief that marriage is disposable. Now that doesn't mean that if you are in an abusive relationship, you need to suffer through that. Don't hear me saying that. Or that if you were abandoned by your spouse, then you're just out of luck. Don't hear me saying that either. Again, we need to think through these issues really well. The point for us today, for every person here, married, single, divorced, remarried, whatever it is, marriage is a holy union before God that lasts until death. It's not, divorce is not an, an easy, simple solution that can be applied to a marriage for whatever reason. Jesus wants us to see marriage as sacred. And he's fighting against an attitude in his culture of, of disposability, that marriage can be thrown away. And that's a lot like how our culture views marriage. So it needs to hear Jesus in Matthew 5, 31 through 32. Jesus elevates marriage to a holy place, and he brings divorce to such a low place that he, he equates it with adultery. These are things worth pondering. But I don't want those who have endured divorce to feel condemned by God as if divorce is the unforgivable sin. All sins are paid for at the cross of Christ. Christ, And that's really good news. We should have a high view of marriage, right? In the church. If you're married or not. But we should have an even higher view of God's grace. So if this is something that you have endured in your life, even if your divorce can't be found in quote-unquote biblical grounds, there is forgiveness. Praise the Lord. Second, Jesus wants us to have integrity in our words. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. 
Anything more than this comes from evil. And these, these words fit really neatly into a discussion of marriage and divorce. Jesus does that on purpose here. In all things, including marriage, we should simply say yes or no and live with integrity in that decision. But Jesus doesn't only have marriage in mind. In fact, just as divorce was a concession from God because his people were hard-hearted, oaths were permitted because his people are unfaithful. Jesus says again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Once again, it's not a direct quotation from any one particular Old Testament passage, but a summary of many Old Testament passages as well as Jewish oral tradition. Remarks on oaths can be found in Numbers 30, Deuteronomy 23, Leviticus 19, just to name a couple These passages emphasize the fact that Israel was not supposed to swear upon the name of God, which would break the third commandment, and that their oaths, the other oaths they took, would need to be fulfilled. But much like the issue of divorce, a lot of commentary and tradition had arisen on the topic of oath-taking, especially concerning what types of oaths you could take. So, for example... A lot of this tradition had stuff like, you can take an oath on the temple and not keep that oath. It wouldn't be binding. But an oath taken on the gold in the temple, that would be a binding oath. Just a a bunch of stuff like that. Jesus will deal with that kind of moral gymnastics in Matthew 23. And suffice to say, the Pharisees wanted to find a way to make their oaths invalid. They wanted to sound as if they were promising something without actually promising anything. They were using the law to justify their deceitfulness. But Jesus says in verse 33, do not take an oath at all. Then he lists certain things not to take oaths against. And all of this was related to the deceitful scripture interpretation the Pharisees had crafted into like an extreme sport. Don't take an oath against heaven. Don't take an oath by the earth. Don't take an oath by Jerusalem. Don't even take an oath against your own head. Because in the end, all of these are ultimately under God's sovereign control. They're not your own. Heaven is the throne of God. The earth is his footstool. Jerusalem is the city of God's great king, who is Jesus. And we don't even have control over our own heads. Only God does. Jesus' point is that no matter how we might try to twist it, if we take an oath, it's always related to God because he has sovereign control over all things. Therefore, we're always breaking the third commandment. Verse 37 is a wonderful application of his whole point and a very difficult challenge. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The apostle James probably had this exact teaching in mind when he said in his letter, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Once again, we're tempted to ask the what about questions, right? 
right away? What about swearing in the president at his inauguration or swearing in a court of law and so on and so forth? But that's not the point. The deeper righteousness Jesus is bringing us toward is this. Christians are supposed to be so trustworthy that their simple yes or no are good enough to stand for what they will actually do. So are we at that point? Do we run our businesses with that in mind? Do we raise our kids with that in mind? Do we follow through with all of our commitments, including marriage and contracts and so on and so forth, with that in mind? In the kingdom of God, promises and swearing will be obsolete. When Jesus inaugurates his kingdom on earth, we won't need to swear. We won't need to promise anything. Those are a product of a world where people are faithless and untrustworthy. So once again, we're confronted with a saying of Jesus that should bring us to good, wise contemplation and conversation. How this principle works out in certain situations needs to be navigated with wisdom. Nevertheless, the call to radical integrity stands. We should be a people. When we say yes to something, we follow through with it. Which means practically we'll have to be very careful with what we say yes or no to. We should take our yes and no so seriously, needing no promise or oath to back it up. And this goes for little things like promises made to children. And big things like the vows we take in our marriage. Jesus is calling us to a deeper integrity. An integrity of the heart. And as far as oaths go, he wants to see us have hearts that aren't willing to hold things back. As if I can say yes now, but later on I can take it back if I'd like. He's getting at a heart that is willing and easily lies. Do we have that in us? He's calling us to an integrity of the heart where lust and lies live. He's calling us to a deeper commitment, a commitment to him and to each other. And all three of these sections pierce to the heart of man. They're impossible to accomplish without the Holy Spirit and without God's grace. Who of us can say that we've not given in to lust? Is our church not guilty of making light of marriage from time to time? Are we not guilty? How about our relationship to oaths? No one has a perfect track record there, right? We need God's mercy and forgiveness first for these things. And for the rest of our sins and shortcomings. And the good news of the gospel is that's available to you in Jesus Christ. None of us stands up when confronted with the word of God. But praise the Lord Jesus did. We need the Lord's grace to enable us to move forward in holiness. All of these are starting lines. He wants us to move deeper to a deeper righteousness. Amen? And by God's grace, we'll get there. 
and will continue to run this marathon of Christianity until we die or Christ returns. Praise the Lord. He doesn't have us stagnant, hopeless, as if sin is going to rule us forever. He's coming back and he's going to put it all to end. But right now, you've been given the gift of the Spirit. And so if you find some of these things as more operating on your heart than others, put to death the deeds of the flesh and you will live. It's only accomplishable by the Holy Spirit. This morning, we get to take communion. It's a wonderful, wonderful time. But it speaks to commitment. Communion speaks to commitment. We've committed to each other and we've committed to the Lord. Jesus says of the wine, of the grape juice, of the cup, that it is the new covenant in his blood, and to remember that covenant as often as we drink it. That's what we're doing now. We're remembering a commitment we made to Christ and that Christ has made to us. Praise the Lord. And we're remembering the commitment we made to each other as the church. So ushers, please, I invite you to come forward. Let's take a time of personal prayer to ready our hearts to receive communion. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity now to come to your table to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We ask now that you would bless us through this, that we would be sanctified through it, that now our sins would be brought to mind and we would confess them again. And Lord, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.